Well, we just can't help but love that last song, the 90 and 9. After hearing that song, I wish I was preaching on the 90 and 9. But our heart, get this, our heart must be in tune with that song or all that we do is in vain. What a beautiful thought. Every word in that song. Beautiful thought. Beautiful. I invite your attention to Luke 16 and the brief discussion of the rich man and Lazarus this morning. Two different men, two different lives, two deaths, two, two burials, two funerals. Two different destinations, two people talking in the other world, the, the afterlife. The rich man talking with Abraham. And there are many beautiful lessons that we need to glean from this account. And let's get started doing just that. Lesson number one, wealth can be dangerous. Lesson number one. Wealth can be dangerous. Notice right there in Luke 16, 19, this rich man, he fared sumptuously every day. Some texts say he feasted sumptuously every day. Some translations say he lived in splendor and luxury every day. This man was rich, but he relished in his richness, and he seemed to flaunt it as well. He was clothed in purple and fine linen. Many commentators say that the purple represents his outer garment and the fine linen represents his inner garment. Nonetheless, this man was full of himself and his riches every day of his life. Wealth can be dangerous, certainly can be. And there are a couple passages that can bring this out to us in a greater way. Wealth is certainly dangerous in that it can distract us. Luke 8, 14, Jesus in giving the parable of the sower, He says, What can choke out the Word of God, the cares, pleasures, and the riches of this life can choke out the Word of God. So it can be, at the very least, wealth can be distracting to us. But then it also can be very deceitful. And look over in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and notice verse number 9. And notice how that wealth can be both not only distractful but also deceitful. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6 verse 9, he says, Those who desire to be rich will fall into a temptation. And then notice he says, into a snare. And then into many foolish and hurtful lusts which can drown men in perdition. Can drown men in both ruin and destruction. Into a snare. It is the old, the old rat trap. The, the rat can't help. The rat knows that the trap looks suspicious. It looks funny. But he can't help himself for what lays upon the trap. What lays inside the trap? So the old devil, the old serpent, 
He lays out these things before us. And we know it looks suspicious. We know it's not good for us. Nonetheless, we fall into the trap. It's a trap. It really is. And so it's deceitful. And then wealth can be dangerous not only because of the distraction it will bring and the fact that it is very deceitful, but because it will destroy our faith. And that's what Paul's getting at here in 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10. If you want to read with me, he says, verse 10, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and it is through this kind of desire that many have wandered away from the faith, and they have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. The sorrows is because their faith has been destroyed. The sorrows because their influence has been destroyed. Wealth can be dangerous to us. That's why we read in Hebrews 13 verse 5, Beware of greed. Beware of greed. And then right after that, the apostle says, The Lord has said to us, He will never leave you nor forsake you. Why say that right after the warning about greed? Because greed and faith in God are opposite each other. Okay. Greed is one thing that can destroy our faith. We must remember to give the Lord our lives, to live a life of, of love and generosity and sacrifice, and remember, as we do this, the Lord will be with us. But wealth can be dangerous. Okay. Number two, let's notice this lesson. There are people who are laid at our gate. The rich man here, there was someone laid at his gate. You know his name. His name is Lazarus. And he's very poor. And he's laid at his gate every day. Every day. Just reading about the riches of this man and how that he was relishing in his riches shows that he was a very careless man. But his carelessness about life is mostly seen in that he neglected to help Lazarus. You, are, you, you suspect that his life is out of order by reading verse 19. How that he's relishing in his riches. But you know it's true when you read the next verse and see that he's just simply neglecting he has a real opportunity. With his means, he can make a real difference in the life of this poor man that's laid at his gate. But he neglects to do this. And it really comes down to what we invest in, doesn't it? It comes down to what this rich man was investing in. He was investing in himself and in things and in his riches and not in people. But we make that choice in life. Are we going to invest in ourselves and our things, are we going to invest in people who can be brought to God Almighty? That's really the simple choice of life. And the rich man has met, had made his choice. You remember Jesus said, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon the earth, Matthew 6 19, but rather lay, yourselves up, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. That's how we lay up treasures in heaven. We invest in people. We invest in, in things that will help people come to a better relationship uh, with Jesus Christ. And so it behooves us to think about people who are laid at our gates. Who are people that God is bringing into your life that perhaps you can help? 
Sometimes we have to go searching for people, but sometimes God brings them right into our lives. I think about the example of Paul, Acts 16. He, not by his choice, but he is thrown into prison. But after his experience in prison, especially when the jailer keeping him in prison it ends up asking him, what must I do to be saved? And it becomes very clear that God has laid the jailer at the gate of Paul. And Paul then has the opportunity to help lead him to a knowledge of the gospel and help him lead him to salvation and forgiveness of his sins. Not just his, but his entire household. In the same way, Paul just had this habit. When people were brought into his life, he talked to them about the gospel. In Acts chapter 24, toward the end of that uh, chapter, Paul is brought, not that he chose to be before Felix, but he is brought before Felix, and so he reasons with him about judgment to come, about self-control, about the gospel. And the same thing when he, in Acts 26, when Paul's before Agrippa, he said, Agrippa, you, you've heard the prophets, you, you believe in the prophets, I know you do. Agrippa looks to him and said, Paul, with a little bit more time, you would persuade me to become a Christian. Paul says, yes, that's exactly what I'm here to do. I, w- I want everybody in this room to be just as I am, except without these chains on me. So who are the people that, that God is bringing into your life? Who are the people that are laid at your gate? There are people you see, hear, see and hear about every day. Most of us see the same people every day. Most of us hear about the same people every day. These are people that God is bringing into our lives. What are we going to do about it? What about that waitress that we know? What about that waitress who knows you? Does she also know about your church? Does she also know about your faith? Does she also know about your conviction about the Lord? Does she know about that? Or does she just know about you and who you are? So that's what we're talking about. So, second lesson... There are those people that God lays at our our gate. Third lesson is this. We must honor God in all situations, especially difficult ones. We must honor God in all situations, especially we want our light to shine at difficult times. And now as we continue to read here in Luke 16, we get to Lazarus. And it says that he was a poor man. It says that he was brought to the rich man's gate every day. So that that indicates to us that he was probably crippled. Somebody had to bring him there every day. And then it further says that he desired to eat the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. In other words, he was, he would, uh, sometimes somebody would throw him some scraps from the rich man's estate. And he desired, so he was famished, he was poor, he was crippled. He was famished. And then he had, he, his body was covered with sores. So much so that the dogs would come and lick his sores. In other words, the dogs took care of him just like they took care of their own sores. They would lick their sores because it would clean them. They would lick their sores because it felt good. And so they did that for him as well. And the indication is the dogs did this for him because nobody else would. But in spite of his condition, Lazarus was righteous. We know he was righteous because when he dies, 
the angels come and escort him to Abraham's bosom. We know he's a righteous man. So in spite of his, his conditions, he made the best of his life. And with his lips and his heart and his life, he honored God. He really did. It reminds us of Romans 5 and verse 3, where Paul tells us to rejoice in our tribulations. Absolutely we should. Having a difficult time, we have to rejoice in that. That's hard. That's hard. But it's where our faith must be. Again, same idea of James 1, 2 through 4. James says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into to divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith, has your faith been tried? Is it being tried? The trying of your faith works that patience and the endurance and the maturity that we need to have. The great thing about Lazarus here is what he does not say. He has some impressive silence about him. Impressive silence. Philippians 2, uh, 14 says, Do all things without murmuring. Look at Lazarus. We don't hear him complaining about his situation. We don't hear him blaming God for his situation, cursing God for his situation. We don't hear him complaining against the rich man who could have helped him. We don't hear him complaining about how the rich man is abusing his use of riches instead of using them to God's glory. Well, we hear nothing from, from Lazarus about this. And this is one thing, this is one way in particular that Lazarus is really honoring God in this difficult situation is that he is, faith is so strong that he is not uttering one complaint. So this honoring God in every situation, and in particular, does God call upon us that when times are difficult, that's a particular opportunity where we can shine the brightest because it surprises people, you see. It surprises people. People are not expecting us to be joyous under a tribulation. But when they see that, then, then they may have never paid attention to our, to our faith before, but now they're going to pay attention because, hey, I've, I've seen people struggle before, but I've never seen anybody have that kind of faith in their struggles. Years ago, we mentioned this when all this was happening, but it's good memory. Back when, back when Dan Winkler's... Uh, son was killed by his own wife. And then Dan Winkler, gospel preacher, many of us know him really well. The news media was everywhere around the Winklers for several, several weeks. And continuously Dan would say, we forgive our daughter-in-law. We harbor no ill feelings toward her. We're praying for her. Continuously. Here's what happened. A man by the name of Jason Wiggins, out of nowhere, walked into the Meridianville Church of Christ during when all this was happening and said to the secretary, I want to know more about this church because any Gospel, any preacher of this church who has that kind of forgiveness, I want to know more about it. And Jason was eventually baptized, now a faithful member of the church. There's a rejoicing in tribulation. 
powerful, powerful, powerful faith in God. Next lesson we need to notice is there are heroes everywhere. Lazarus is an unsung hero. But what about the people who would bring Lazarus to that gate every day and go back and get him at night? Okay. I look at these people who are like these people who brought him. They're putting him in the most promising place they knew of. A very rich man's gate. If he would receive help from anywhere, perhaps the people coming and going in, into this estate would be most likely to have something to help this man with. And then they would go back and get him at night. Probably these men helping Lazarus were hardworking people, and so they could get him there and help help best as they could in the morning, go back and get him at night and help best they could, but then left him there uh, during the day. These are unsung heroes. And there are those kind of people everywhere. Everywhere. We need to seek to be an unsung hero. Seeking power and attention does not become a follower of Jesus Christ because Jesus was the very opposite. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 and 22 and he's talking about the different members of the body different members of the body of Christ, the church. He says those members that we look at as the weakest are really the most indispensable members that we have. That is so very true. It will always be that way. Those members of the body that are never, hardly ever noticed publicly are the very ones who are doing the most for the Lord. It will always be that way. There are heroes around us everywhere. Everywhere. May I encourage you with this thought, and that is, when you do good, don't worry about who knows you're doing good, because the only one you're seeking to please is the Lord, and He knows it all. When Jesus was encouraging prayer in Matthew 6, He was telling those Pharisees, He says, quit standing in the corners of the street. Quit standing up in places where people will hear your prayers. Go into your closet. The Lord who hears you in secret will reward you eventually. That's all you got to know. Part of our outreach is to bring names of people. Just bring them. Just bring some names of people who are struggling. Bring some names of people you know that are outside of Christ. And I'm going to tell you something. This is a powerful way of reaching out to the world. If you can bring some names to church, names of people that we can send cards to, names of people that we can contact, that will get the ball rolling. And once we get the ball rolling, a lot of good things can happen. The Lord will work powerfully through us. But we need some unsung heroes who are, will be out here searching, shaking the bushes, searching the streets, looking, listening. Bring us names. Bring us names. So there are unsung heroes everywhere around us. The next lesson is this. <clears throat> Eternal judgment is based on how we use our opportunities. Eternal judgment is based on how we use our opportunities to do the will of God. This is great news for Lazarus in this story. 
Because he has done what he could toward the Lord's glory with what his situation happened to be. It's good news. So we find that, as we keep reading here in Luke 16, that Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom. This is, a, this is as close as you can get to God when you die. In John 1.18, we, we look to see that as Jesus is described, he's described as one who is in the very bosom of the Father. So therefore, he is able to make known the Father's ways to the world. The reason Jesus is able to make known the ways of the Father of the world is because he is so intimate and close. When we die, we want to be in Abraham's bosom. That's where Lazarus is. And that is being with God. Paul once said in Philippians 1, 21-23, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is the gain. This is where we, we've got to be when we die. The good news, he's comforted. He's comforted. Now, we never want to read such passages in this light, and that is to say, well, uh, because um, Lazarus was poor and suffering, therefore he just gets automatic salvation. That's not what this story is saying. And it's also not saying, saying because this rich man was rich and has a few things, therefore he doesn't get salvation. It's not saying that, but it is saying that eternity is based on how we use what we have for the good of God Almighty. Take your Bibles once again. Look with me to 1 Timothy uh, 6. This time I'm starting verse 17. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. Ask for the rich in this world. Charge them that they be not high-minded nor have their hopes set on the uncertainty of riches, but rather that they have their trust and their hope on God, who provides us with everything to enjoy. Charge the rich that they are to do good, that they are to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of... Uh, life that is true, true eternal life. But notice that we are to be rich in good works and really when it comes right down to it, in comparison to the whole world, we're all rich. What are we doing with what we have? The more we have, the more good works we ought to have. It's just that simple. The more a person has, the more good works they ought to have in their lives going on. See, the danger is that the very things that God has blessed us with can become a distraction or it can deceive us into thinking that we are doing God's will when we're not. And eventually it can destroy our faith, but we can't let that happen. Now understand this. We are to be rich in good works. You do not need permission from the church to do good works. God has authorized us, God has told us to go out here and be rich in good works. We co- cooperate together to do good works, but we can't be together all the time. But the more good works that each of us do, then the more glory that brings to God and the more it helps His church. So, eternity is based on what we do. Because good news for Lazarus, because he had used what he had for God. Bad news for the rich man. Notice as you keep reading here in Luke 16, 
He is in torment. He is in pain because of a flame, flame of fire. And he is in complete view of what might have been his. He sees Lazarus. He sees Abraham afar off. But there's no way for him to get there. Bad news for him. Good news for us is we're on this side of eternity and we can still turn our lives around. We can enhance our faith. We can do more good works. We can serve God out of love and honor while we have the time and opportunity. So eternity is based on what we do with the opportunities God has given us to do His will. The next lesson is we will live with our choices for a very, very long time. We will live with our choices in this life for a very, very long time. The rich man and Abraham are having this conversation. The rich man has said to Abraham, Send Lazarus that he may dip his finger in the tip of some water and cool this my tongue. I'm in torment in this flame. I'm in anguish in this flame. I can't handle this anymore. Well, Abraham said, Remember that in your lifetime you had good things, but Lazarus had not so good things. Now the tables have turned. And then he said to him further, he said, there is a great gulf, a chasm that is, has been fixed by God, immovable, between where the righteous will be in eternity and where the unrighteous will be in eternity, and you cannot cross that gulf. It is impassable. And furthermore, you cannot go back to earth and make things right. His situation is fixed. He cannot change it. He will now, and he has been, living with his choices for thousands of years. And he will continue to do so. And so it it makes us use our imagination a little bit. That rich man now, we are 2,000 years removed now from the time of Christ. He's already been in torments over 2,000 years. Do you think after, after a few hundred years, he, he yelled out to the Lord and said, Lord, uh, isn't this enough? Do you think after uh, 1,500 years, he yelled out to the Lord and said, Lord, I can't take it anymore, but in fact, he's just now getting started. Revelation 14, 10 and 11, those who worship the beast, they will suffer in fire. And the smoke of their torment will ascend, go up forever and ever, and they shall have no rest day or night. The rich man is living with his choices forever and ever and ever. That's why we say we cannot afford 
but to surrender ourselves to the Lord Jesus. We can't afford any other choice, any other situation. The final lesson for this morning is the gospel is the only guide for salvation here and now and then in heaven. The gospel is the only guide to receive forgiveness, to receive strength, to receive the knowledge and the pathway that will lead us to heaven. The gospel is the only way. Because this conversation continued with, between Abraham and the rich man, and the next request of the rich man was, send Lazarus back to earth. I have five brothers there, and I don't want them to come and have to be part of this torment. Notice the, the reaction of Abraham. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Rich man's not done. He said, no, Father Abraham, no. If one goes to them from the dead, then I know my brothers will stop and they'll change their ways. Again, Abraham comes back and he says, verse 30 and 31, if they will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one goes to them from the dead. The gospel as we have it is totally sufficient. Needs no separation, needs no subtraction, it needs no addition. It is, as, as Peter writes in 2 Peter uh, 1 and verse 3, we have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. Everything that we need is found in Scripture. If someone doubts and disobeys, it's not a lack of evidence. We have the scriptures. It's not a lack of evidence. And it's also not a lack of people applying the word of God. We have that everywhere. It's not a lack of nice people. It's the fact that someone is too stubborn, too unwilling to believe in the Lord Jesus. The gospel is all sufficient. <clears throat> Which means that we do not need sensational things to try to enhance the religion of Jesus. We don't need it. This was part of the Jews' problem. They constantly asking for a sign. Even though Jesus was clearly teaching them the right ways, they, were, they kept asking for a sign. Matthew 12, verse 38. Lord, show us a sign. What did Jesus say? I'm not going to give you any sign except for the sign of Jonah the prophet. You see, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. I'll give you a sign. What about Jonah? What did Jonah point to? Jonah points right down to me and to my resurrection. You don't need a sign. You need to listen. Abraham said to the rich man, they're not going to be persuaded even if someone goes to them from the dead. What did the Jews try to do to Lazarus? What had happened to Lazarus in John 11? Jesus raised him from the dead. Then you open up your Bibles in John 12 and read verses 9 through 11. There they are. The Jews are plotting to kill Lazarus because too many of their own people was beginning to, they were beginning to believe in Jesus. So these Jewish leaders, they wanted to kill Lazarus and get him out of the way and stop all this belief. Though a man came back from the dead, they still would not believe. 
We don't need sensational things. We need to listen to the Word of God. It just never has been more complicated than that. It is simply that simple. When you look at the book of Acts, you see that, that it was clear that, that the tomb was empty. Jesus, as he predicted, was been raised from the dead. He had been seen by people after his death for 40 days on the earth. And yet still, some would not believe. We don't need sensational things. We must listen to the Word of God. The Gospel is our only guide. But today, you look around. You don't have to look far. People are virtually trying to turn worship into a concert. Why? Because they don't think the religion of Jesus as it is revealed in the New Testament is enough to attract the world. But it is enough. Jesus said in, in John 12, 32 or so, John 12, He says, if I be lifted up on the cross, I will draw all men to me. If we can't be drawn by the cross, we're not going to be drawn. We shouldn't be drawn. People think that they've got to have some hip, flawless speaker in front of them in order for the religion to be credible or for the religion to have influence. It simply is not the case. Some people think that, that the, the meeting houses in which you worship are, have got to be you know, in perfect condition in order to have the religion of Christ. We don't need that. We need to listen to the Word of God. Tell you what. Half the time I forget what I'm supposed to be remembering. You're not like that, are you? I know it's 11.21. My clock here says 11.21. Don't forget what we need to serve Christ. We don't need sensational things. Look what we got. We've got the bread and the juice can be found everywhere in the world. We've got people. We've got hearts. We've got songs in our heart. We've got prayers we can utter to God. We have a way of giving back to Him. We have the Bible, the Word of God. We have what we need to both worship and serve the Lord. The Gospel is our only guide. And so we learn from the rich man... And we learn from Lazarus many wonderful things. But the way this concludes, I think, is so fitting. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. We must hear the Lord ourselves. Are you hearing Him? Are you listening to the point to where you now want to give Him your life? Submit to His will? Obey His commands. If you're ready to put Jesus on in baptism this very morning, then we're ready to serve and we're ready to help you do just that. We're help you. There are other plans that are laid out for, for today, but nothing is, is going to supersede if you want to make your life right with Christ uh, this morning. That, that is top priority right now. And if you need to come, come right now as we stand together, as we sing.